Praise God. Well, I want to invite you to open your Bibles to a familiar place, 1 Peter chapter 1. A lady came to church Friday night for the first time, and she came up after the service to introduce herself. And uh, we had a nice little chat, and she said she'd been going to another church for 10 years, and, and something had been going on in her, and she couldn't figure out what it was, and, and God had just stirred her up and stirred her up. And she's, she says, I, I don't understand this, but God, God brought me here. And I said, oh, Really? So, you know, there's always, you know, there's always some concern because you don't know what's going on, you know, if they've left in frustration and, and uh, you want to send them back to make sure everything's okay. And so she said, uh, she says, I know what it is. I know. She said, she said, you teach the word here. She says, I was thirsty. I was hungry. And the word. And she said, uh, when you first opened the Bible and had us open our Bible, the man sitting next to me said, uh, when you said open to First Peter chapter one, he said, he said, oh, he's been in this chapter for a few months. <laughs> and her soul, she says, my soul leapt inside me. She says, this is wonderful. This is wonderful. Isn't it wonderful? Study God's word. Well, we're going to look this morning. We're going to start a new, a new mini series this week and next week, and we're going to study verses ten through twelve. And we are going to talk about the greatness of our salvation. Now, this is important because on the surface, we would all acknowledge that we have a great salvation, wouldn't we? This marvelous song that Katie sang to to the Lord and to bless us, she concludes with, I believe. And we would all agree, I believe. But the question is, what do we believe? And do we really, in fact, believe? And that's part of what we want to talk about this morning and this great salvation that God has purchased for us. You know, there's so many Christians who, who struggle in their Christian experience. So many Christians who don't seem to, to be able to make hardly any progress in their life. And so many who will fall off. And I wonder, I wonder Lord, why? And I believe that there's the secret is in this passage. It's the secret's in this passage. So I want to encourage you uh, to stay with me in the study and, and stay focused because there's much here for us. And, and there's much for us to be able to impart to other people. Would you agree? So we can, we can uh, equip others. We can encourage others with the things that we're learning. So we have a great, great salvation. This is what Peter's going to talk about to us. Think for a moment. Where would you be today without the Lord? Where would you be today without the Lord? What would your life be like? Now, for most of us who've been a Christian for any length of time, in a long period of time, you know, maybe it's hard to think where where we'd be. Some others of us are brand new in the faith, and so we don't have that much experience yet. But the reality is, if all of us would sit down and really begin to think and imagine, where would I be? Some of us would be dead and in hell. Some of us would be continuing in our misery, no hope of joy, our lives no better off, not feeling any sense of security, no real hope, anxious and uptight about everything, angry at other people, honking our horns. May I suggest that it is a, a terrible temptation to succumb to taking our salvation for granted. It's easy to do that, isn't it? When we're caught up in the busyness of everyday life, all the stuff, going back and forth from this and work and soccer and baseball and t-ball and basketball and school and da 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 especially those of us with children. It's very, very easy for us to to lose sight of the significance and the greatness of our salvation. And I want to suggest to you also that salvation has no real meaning, now stay with me, 
has no real meaning unless it is contrasted with a life without God. So that I what? I see the value of my salvation. I experience the value of my salvation. I'm thanking God and praising God for my salvation because I understand what life without it was like. Am I making sense? And so Peter now will talk to us about this very issue. And his theme in these verses, verses 10 through 12 in chapter 1, his theme is, beloved, very simply, the greatness of our salvation. The greatness of our salvation. He's just completed that little section where he's talked about the joy of our salvation, rejoicing with a joy that's inexpressible and glorious, Verse 9, he speaks to us and he says that you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. That's the goal of our faith. That's why we're Christians, for the salvation of our souls. And he says you are receiving. He's talking present tense. There is a present deliverance from sin and the power of sin and the effects of sin. This is a great salvation, a great and magnificent, glorious salvation. Beloved, there is nothing so marvelous, there is nothing so wonderful, so exciting, so powerful as the saving of a soul from sin and death and hell and Satan. Nothing. You can save somebody's physical life, and that's a wonderful thing. But when you contrast it with the saving of a soul from hell from forever damnation, that's the greatest. I read a story some time ago, a fascinating story, and maybe some of you are familiar with it. It's a story of two English boys, a country boy and a city boy. And the city boy had gone to the country for a, uh, for a holiday and uh, was swimming in a, in a local lake when all of a sudden he got a cramp and he began to drown. So naturally, he began to holler for help, and there was a, a country boy working in a field adjacent to the, to the lake. He heard the screams for help. He dropped his work, and he ran to the, to the lake. He saw this boy going down, and he jumped in and, and, and saved him, brought him to safety. Marvelous. It saved his life. Well, the two boys became acquainted, obviously, after that. And it was some time later when their families got together and the, and the family of the city boy said to the, to the young country boy, they said, what, what are you going to do with your life? Where are you going to go? What, what do you plan on doing? And he said, I'd like to be a doctor. I'd like to go into medical school. I'd like to go to medical school and study and be a doctor. Well, the, the, the city boy's family was so grateful for the saving of his son's life that they paid for all of his schooling. He went to medical school. He graduated, became a famous doctor. He discovered penicillin. His name was Alexander Fleming. He got the Nobel Prize. He died in 1955. Many of you have remembered and, and know about him. The city boy that he rescued went on to grow up, and he too had an illustrious career. He found himself in a conference, a very important conference, with national and international leaders he had a meeting with two men, Franklin Roosevelt and Joseph Stalin. The city boy's name was Winston Churchill. In the midst of that meeting with, with, uh, with uh, uh, Roosevelt and with Stalin, many of you know that Churchill got real, real sick. Contracted pneumonia. But thanks to the invention and the discovery of penicillin, his life was saved. So as we ooh and awe, and as we marvel at the coincidence, <laughs> twice Churchill's life was saved by Fleming. And we think, marvelous! Such a great man whose life was saved. How much greater is it to save a soul from hell than just a physical life? Are you with me? Do you understand the, the significance of this? Beloved, we have a great, great salvation. And Peter is writing, remember, to persecuted, scattered, rejected, hated, despised Christians who in verse 1 he calls them what? Strangers. 
Most of them have lost everything. And they're suffering terrifically. And in this opening section of chapter 1, Peter is saying no matter how difficult things get, no matter how difficult your life is, no matter how severe the persecution, how painful the rejection, you can always, always look to your great salvation. I'm saved. I'm saved. I may not be the world's favorite, but I'm God's favorite. The world may not love me, but God loves me. I am saved. You see, the value of your salvation, when you begin to think on it and rehearse it, lifts you up. Gives you strength and courage to press on when everything seems to be going against you. Peter wants his readers, and he wants us, who are numbered amongst those readers. No matter how difficult it gets, he wants us to focus on the salvation of our souls. That is the focus, the salvation of our souls. That full and final and rescue from sin and death and hell and Satan himself. The deliverance from all suffering, all persecution. To a life that is full and blessed. A salvation which God has graciously chosen to give us through faith in His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Think about this. Think about the word salvation. What a marvelous word. Is there any other word in the English language? Is there any other thought, any other concept, any other reality that that is so tremendous when you contemplate it? Any other word? Salvation. 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 No other word conveys the kind of comfort that that word conveys. No other word is as securing as that word. No other word is as assuring as that word. No other word can bring that kind, the kind of joy that that word... Salvation. I'm saved. I'm saved. I'm saved. Do you know what that means? I'm saved. Glorious. We're talking about salvation. We're talking about a spiritual salvation. We're talking about the the rescue of a human soul from the grip and the slavery of sin, death, hell, and Satan. Freedom. Freedom. Beloved, I want to suggest to you that this is the greatest theme in the universe. Salvation. There is no greater thing that you and I could talk about, no greater thing that you and I could focus on. Everything else in this life pales, is minutia in comparison to the greatness of our salvation. Think about that. It's easy to be caught up in this life, isn't it? Easy to get caught up in the details of this life. Easy to get caught up in the little things. How, how much, how much do we stand back, do we sit back, do we get on our knees and contemplate the greatness of our salvation? You know what the Bible says. The Bible says that man is a sinner. Isn't that true? We don't like to hear that. Before I, before I became a believer, I didn't want to hear that. I didn't want people to come and tell me, you're a sinner. I protested, no doubt many of you protested, and said, I'm a, no, 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 I'm a good person. Because we equate what? Sinners in our mind with horrible, wicked, evil people. And I'm not a horrible, wicked, evil person. I commit a few sins, but I don't rape, pillage, and plunder. But I was a sinner. I was a sinner. That is not the favorite thing that people like to hear. We want to hear, you're a nice person. You're wonderful. We want our tummies rubbed, don't we? We want people to be nice to us. Very few of us can handle people telling us the truth. Very few people can handle handle people telling us the truth. We don't like to hear. We don't like to hear difficult things. We don't like to hear criticism. 
We don't like to hear those things that, that, that speak to the issues of our heart. We don't like to hear about our, our weaknesses and our imperfections. We hide from those things. We defend ourselves. We say, oh, no, 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 not that bad. Yes, you are. The Bible tells us we're sinners. And as sinners, we're guilty before a holy God. We are guilty before God. We're guilty of sin. And because we're guilty of sin, we're headed, the Bible tells us, for eternal judgment. Not something, again, that people want to hear. We say, well, no, no, I'm religious. No, it doesn't matter. I do good works. I give my time. It doesn't matter. The Bible says that men are sinners and women. I, too, have been influenced by political correctness. As much as I resist it. And as sinners, we are, we are headed, beloved, for eternal judgment. We are to spend eternity in the torments of hell. Man desperately needs to be rescued from that. He's desperate. He doesn't realize that. De- did you, before you became a Christian, did you realize how desperate you were, the desperateness of your situation? No. Most of us were going through life thinking, ah, it's okay, I'm doing all right, I'm pretty good. And you compare ourselves to other people, don't we? Even as Christians, we compare ourselves to other Christians. We say, as long as I'm in the bell curve. <laughs> we desperately need to be rescued from sin and hell. Man needs to be saved. He must be delivered. He's desperate for that. And the Bible tells us that man can't save himself. Despite all of his works, despite all of his intentions, despite all of his efforts, he cannot save himself. The Bible makes it very clear that by his own works, by his own effort, he cannot save himself, he can't rescue himself, he cannot deliver himself from sin. He can't deliver himself from the effects of sin, whether they be temporal or eternal. And we build all kinds of systems. We have all kinds of man-made systems, well-intentioned, well-meaning, to deliver us from our problems, to help us become happy, well-adjusted. And we do. Our society, American culture, we're suckers for every new seminar and tape series that comes down the road. One of the biggest selling books in the world is How to Win Friends and Influence People. Dale Carnegie. That book has been salvation to lots of people. But it doesn't tell you how you must be saved. We have a psychologized society, a man-developed system, man-developed. Now, some of you get mad at me when I get on this little train of thought, but I'm so passionate about it because we still don't get it. We have have people who are committed to to, uh, organizations. Again, you're going to be mad at me, like AA and some of the others. But these are man-developed systems. God is calling us into a relationship with Him. Hear me. He's calling us into a relationship with Him. And it's in the context of that relationship that He saves. He delivers. He heals. And it's only when you're in that relationship and you're an active participant of that relationship can you experience His delivering power. It's just not doing stuff. You do the stuff as a result of what God has released you and freed you so that you can do. Don't be offended and mad at me because I get on this this bandwagon. It's only Jesus. And far too many Christians do not understand and have not entered in to that kind of fruitful relationship. He says, I will set you free. 
Now, either he is saying, and he's, either he's truthful or he's not. And we rely on our experience. We say, I haven't experienced that, so I, go to, I have to go to this other thing. No. What it requires is that we invest in this relationship. What it requires is that we commit to this relationship and we seek Jesus with our whole heart, mind, soul, and strength. Not haphazardly, not half-heartedly, not when it just is convenient, we feel good about it. Am I making sense? Amen. My soul pants for you. I hunger and thirst for righteousness. God, make me right. You see, for most Christians today, that's not their prayer. Oh, God, bless me today. Help me do away with this. Help me do away with that. But there's no hunger for a relationship with Him. Beloved, man needs to be delivered from sin and the effects of sin. He can't do it himself. He can't do it through a man-made system. It's impossible. It's absolutely impossible. But God can set people free. That's the good news of the Bible. That's why it's called the good news. There is hope. There's good news to be had in the midst of all the bad news that surrounds us and infiltrates and dominates our life. There's good news. There's good news for your marriage. There's good news for your children. There's good news for your family. There's good news for those in your, in your relationships who are struggling with whatever the issue is. There's good news to be had. Man can't save himself, but God can save him. And God, the Bible says, will save. The Bible tells us that God loves the sinner, doesn't it? Yes. Romans chapter 5, verse 8. Marvelous. Paul writes, he says, God commended his love towards us. While we were sinners, Christ died for us. Later on in chapter 5, he says, while we were enemies of God. Do you see, when I was at my worst, God loved me. When I was at my worst, God loved me and Christ died for me. The Bible is very clear. God, God loves the sinner. Not only does he love the sinner, but he is able to rescue sinners. Is God able? Yes. Has God, does God have the power to save Yes, he does. He has miraculous saving power. He loves the sinner, and he's able to save the sinner. Look at Psalm 3, verse 8. It says, from the Lord comes deliverance. No place else. Deliverance comes from whom? Comes from the Lord. He has the power to save. Nobody else does. And beloved, God is always willing to rescue the sinner. Not only does he love the sinner, not only is he able to rescue, he's willing to rescue the sinner. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 4, Paul says that God our Savior wants all men to be saved. He's, he's willing to save. And furthermore, God has planned to rescue sinners. He's planned to do it. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 9. He saved us because, Paul says, of his own purpose. He has a plan to save sinners. Isn't this great news? So God loves the sinner. God is willing to rescue the sinner. He's able to rescue the sinner. And he has planned to rescue the sinner. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. And God, furthermore, God has made Christ the means of rescuing the sinner. There's no other basis upon which the sinner can be rescued except Jesus Christ. In Romans chapter 3, in verse 24, the Apostle Paul writes that marvelous statement. He says that redemption came by Christ Jesus. In Romans chapter 1, verse 16, he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel 
because it is the power of God. It's a power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. Hallelujah. So Christ is the means of salvation. And God has also ordained preachers to announce that Christ is the means of salvation. What a plan. God has a rescue plan in motion. He's got all the pieces there. Everything's in place. He loves the sinner. He's able and willing to rescue the sinner. He's planned to rescue the sinner. He's made Christ the means of that rescue. And he has ordained preachers to announce the rescue plan and to call people to repentance. Isn't that a great, great proof? Isn't that marvelous? This is a great salvation that he's given to us. It's God. And so, beloved, we should praise the Lord, shouldn't we, for what he has done. Shouldn't we? Should we praise him? Absolutely. For the salvation that he has provided through his sovereign choice. God has initiated this. Does he owe us anything? No. It's on his whole initiation. He didn't owe us anything. I hear Christians saying, why did this happen to me? What did I do to deserve this? You ought to be thanking God that you didn't get what you deserved. I mean, put things in context. If we got what we deserved, beloved, you and I would be burning in hell the moment we were conceived. That's the truth. Now, you're not very nice to me. I love you. I'm your best friend. And faithful are the wounds of a friend. I want you to know the truth. I'm going to stand before God one day myself, and he's going to say, did you preach the truth? Or did you just rub their tummies and make them feel good? I want to be able to say, Lord, I preached the truth best I could. I want to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. So, What a glorious and marvelous gift we have from God in our eternal salvation. What a gift. When you understand this great salvation, when you grasp something of the greatness of your salvation, you can't help but be full of joy. You can't help but break forth in praise. You can't help but want to tell other people. You can't help but want to respond and honor Him with every other aspect of your life. Beloved, we should never, ever lose our joy over our salvation. Would you agree? There's no reason we should lose our joy. But we do. And it's easy to lose it, isn't it? Isn't that a tragedy? It's easy to lose it. Listen to what the chronicler says in 1 Chronicles chapter 16, verse 23. I love this. He says, sing to the Lord... The idea behind that is continually be singing to Him. Praise His name. Continually praise His name. And then he says this. Proclaim His salvation day after day. Why? Well, beloved, if for no other reason, so that we don't forget. If for no other reason, so that we don't grow cold to the reality of the greatness of our salvation. Psalm 96, verse 2, rehearses that very same statement. The very same statements repeated. Sing to the Lord, praise His name, proclaim His salvation day after day. Wow. What else can we say? Isn't that great? Now, Peter, in this passage that we're going to look at, Peter presents this great salvation, but he presents it from a very, I think, very unique perspective. He doesn't present it from the perspective of those who are the recipients of salvation. Nor does he present it from the perspective of the great God who gives it, of the great Christ who purchased it, or of the great results and effects in the lives who receive it. He presents this great, great salvation from, as I said, a very marvelous and unique perspective. He presents it 
through the eyes of those who brought it. This is marvelous. I've never thought to do this. If I were to write this passage, I would have presented it some other way. I would have never thought to do this, but it's to me, this is very, very marvelous and ingenious. So he presents the greatness of our salvation from four viewpoints, four perspectives. He wants us to hear how others view this great salvation, how fascinated they are with it. So he starts with the Old Testament prophets who proclaim the message. And then he moves on to the Holy Spirit who inspired the message. Starts with the Old Testament prophets, those who proclaimed it, the Holy Spirit who inspired it. And then he moves on to the New Testament apostles who were the first gospel preachers. What was their perspective? And then he concludes with the angels and what was their perspective on this great salvation. So Peter, in effect, demonstrates, speaks about the greatness of our salvation by how the prophets viewed it, how the Holy Spirit viewed it, how the apostles viewed it, and how the angels viewed it. So we can say four things that will follow. Salvation then, now stay with me, salvation is the theme of the prophet's study. It's what? The theme of the prophet's study. This was their central theme. Secondly, salvation was the theme of the Holy Spirit's inspiration. It was the theme of the Holy Spirit's inspiration. The theme. Thirdly, it was the theme of the apostles' testimony, was it not? You read the testimony of all the apostles, all the letters of the New Testament churches, all the gospel preaching. That was the theme, salvation. And fourthly, it was the theme of the angels' interest and fascination. Beloved, all this, all this speaks of the greatness of our salvation Salvation was the core issue. It was the heart issue of all of these witnesses. The greatness of our salvation. Now let's look at the theme of the, the, the prophet's study. Verses 10 and 11 next week, Lord willing, if we're back again, we'll cover verse 12. And remember what Peter's intent is in this passage. Peter's intent is to have us understand and grasp something of the greatness of our salvation. What is Peter's intent? For us to grasp what? Something of the greatness of our salvation. Do it again. What's Peter's intent? To have us grasp something of the what? Greatness of our salvation. All right? This is very, very important. That's his whole point in these three verses. So that no matter how bad things get, No matter how bad things get, no matter how difficult life becomes, we hold on to the theme of the greatness of our salvation. All is not hopeless. There's great hope. God has saved me. He saved me from sin, and He saved me from the effects of sin. Not just future but it's happening present tense. Isn't that exciting? Marvelous. I have greater hope tomorrow than I do today. I have great hope today, but I know tomorrow my salvation is greater, it draws closer, it is more real than it was yesterday. Is that cause for rejoicing? Well, let's look then at the testimony of the prophets. Read with me verses 10, 11, and 12. And then, as I said, we're going to focus on verses 10 and 11. That's all my introduction. (laughs) Concerning this salvation. Now, in the previous verses, he's, he's described that great salvation, hasn't he? So, verse 10, he says, Concerning this salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you, 
searched intently and with the greatest care. You might want to underline those words, uh, searched intently and with the greatest care. I think there's a tremendous, we could do a whole sermon, a series on that, couldn't we? Trying to find out the time and the circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. Verse 12, It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you. When they spoke of the things that have now been told you by those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. He says, even angels long to look into these things. How they studied one another. They read each other's writings and prophecies. Why? So that they could know all that they could know about this salvation, this promised salvation. They wanted to find out all they could find out. They wanted to understand it. Do we? Do we want to understand it? Do we want to know all we can about it? Is it that great? Is that that so preoccupying for us that we, as they did, search intently with the greatest of care to know the riches of our salvation that we may experience the fullness of it? Jesus said, I came that you should know the truth and the truth would set you free. How much of the truth do we know? Really? Now think of this. Of all that the prophets could have studied, they could have studied tons of things, couldn't they? Like we do. We're so distracted. We got stuff. We're studying stuff. We're reading stuff. We're into so much stuff. Of all the stuff that the prophets could have studied, why would they be so preoccupied with this subject? Why? Because it's the greatest theme in the entire universe. There's nothing greater. There is nothing greater. Because what? The salvation that God has promised sinners. Oh. This was the passion of the prophets. This was their passion. They wanted to fully understand salvation. They were fascinated with the promises of salvation that they had written about, that God had spoken to them about. He said, well now, well, weren't, the, weren't, weren't the prophets themselves recipients of this salvation? What do you think? Were they recipients of this salvation? Yeah, yeah they were. And even though they received salvation, what we, what we have to remember to understand is they received it not having fully seen its accomplishment. They received the gift of salvation without ever seeing or knowing the Savior, Jesus Christ. They received the gift of salvation without ever seeing or fully understanding all that was involved in His life, His death, His burial, and His resurrection. They never saw, they never understood the full accomplishment of the great salvation that they were recipients of. They didn't understand what was really available in the fullness of salvation. They couldn't read about it and glory in it like you and I can. They can't marvel at it. As we read the Apostle Paul in the book of Romans, as he describes this tremendous salvation. And there was more to it. You see, because in their prophecies, the promise of God was that the salvation was to, that it was salvation to come was not a salvation just for Israel, but it would go beyond Israel to all the nations of the world. This was unheard of. This was unheard of. The, the Jews had no comprehension of this. The prophets didn't understand this. Because God had told them, you're to be separate. You're not to intermingle. You're my chosen people among all the peoples on the earth. And yet God is causing them to prophesy that this great salvation is going to be extended to all the people. How can this be? 
Notice in verse 10 the phrase, unique phrase, interesting phrase. The grace that was to come. The grace that was to come. The grace that was to come. You see that? Significant phrase. The subject of their intense study was the subject of grace. The grace of God, beloved. The word grace reflects a greater reality, may I say this, than just salvation. A greater reality. Salvation speaks about the act of saving. Grace is, speaks of the motive of saving. You see the difference? It's what's behind it. It's what encompasses our salvation. Grace, beloved, is a much larger reality than salvation. The grace to come. The grace to come. They were fascinated to study the grace of God. God's undeserved blessing. God's unmerited favor. His forgiving goodness towards sinners. And the expanse of that forgiveness. They were fascinated to know that God had promised a salvation by grace that would embrace all the nations of the world. Amazing. Now we must not think that because they spoke of the grace to come, important distinction here, we must not think that because they spoke of the grace to come, that there was no grace in the Old Testament. Was there grace in the Old Testament? Yes. Yes, there was. You see, we know that God by nature is gracious, isn't he? He is by nature gracious. The same God that is gracious to us was gracious in the Old Testament. Because that's who He is. That's who He is. God has always been unchangeably the same. He has always been unchangeably gracious. Isn't that wonderful? He's gracious. He's gracious. He was gracious in the Old Testament economy. We'll see this. And He's gracious in the New Testament economy. Beloved, God is gracious. In the book of Genesis, the very first book of the Bible, interesting passage, uh, this is Joseph. Now, if anybody had reason to crab, it would be Joseph, wouldn't it? Yeah. In chapter 43 of the, of the book of Genesis, in verse 29, Joseph has gone through a whole lot. Now he's an exalted place in Egypt. His family has come. He sent them back to bring who? Benjamin, remember? The youngest son, his brother. Bring Benjamin And so they finally bring Benjamin, and it's in this passage when Joseph sets his eyes on his brother Benjamin, he says this, My son, God be gracious to you. Joseph knew of the graciousness of God. The patriarchs understood the graciousness of God in the Old Testament. Moses knew that God was gracious. Moses the one through whom God gave the law. Exodus chapter 34, verse 6. You remember, this was the time when God uh, told Moses, Moses says, God, I want to see you. And God said, no man can see me and live, but I'll put you in the cleft of the rock. I'll pass by, I'll cover you with my hand. Then after I pass by, I'll remove my hand. You can see my backside. As God passed by, Moses beheld the glory of God. And as God passed by, he declared his name. He proclaimed who he is, his very nature and character. He said, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and what? Gracious God. Aren't you glad that he's slow to anger and abounding in love and faithfulness to thousands of generations? Marvelous. Beloved God is gracious. Jonah knew that God was gracious, didn't he? The fourth chapter of the book of Jonah. The prophet Jonah. The first two verses of that that marvelous book. We all know that Jonah ran and hid from God, didn't we? Don't we? God had commanded him what? To go to where? Nineveh, didn't he? 
He commanded him to preach to the Ninevites. Now, the Nineveh was the capital of the Assyrian Empire. And the Assyrian Empire was the, was the dominating world power at this particular juncture in world history. And it was the, they were the fiercest people on the face of the earth. These people were incredibly fierce. And God says, Jonah, I want you to go up there to Nineveh, the capital city. And I want you to preach to them. Jonah said, yes, Lord. What did Jonah do? He ran. He ran. And you know why Jonah ran from God? He didn't want to go to Nineveh to preach. Why didn't he want to go to Nineveh and preach? Because he knew that God was gracious. And if he preached, they'd repent and God would save him. He couldn't stand the thought of the Ninevites being saved. He knew God was gracious. Look at this, verse 1. But Jonah was greatly displeased and became angry, verse 2. He says, he prayed to the Lord, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was still at home? That is why I was so quick to flee to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God. Slow to anger, abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Oh, my. But you see, there was a surpassing grace, a surpassing grace to come. A grace, beloved, greater than was seen in Nineveh. A grace that was greater than was seen in Israel. This grace to come. The prophets, knowing the grace of God, understood that there was a surpassing grace to come. They wanted to know more of this grace. Don't you? A grace way beyond anything, anything they had heard about, anything they had assumed, anything that they had expected. Isaiah speaks about this marvelous grace. Isaiah chapter 55, verses 1 through 7. I want to read these verses to you. Take this, mark this reference down. You want to study on your own. This is a powerful passage. He says, Come all you who are thirsty. Come all you who are thirsty, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come, buy and eat. No money? How can I, how can I buy and eat if I have no money? Just come. Just come. Come, buy wine and milk without money, without cost. It's free. It's a surpassing grace. It's beyond your wildest dreams. The Apostle Paul says, No eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived of what God has prepared for those who love Him. It's grace to come. This great and marvelous, delivering, freeing, rescuing grace is salvation. You're thirsty? You're thirsty? Come. Come. He says, why? Why spend money on what is not bread and your labor on what does not satisfy? Where are you putting your focus? Where are you investing? Why spend money on what is not bread and your labor on what does not satisfy? Listen, listen to me and eat what is good and your soul will delight in the richest affair." Give ear and come near to me. Hear me that your soul may, what? Live. I will make an everlasting covenant with you. An everlasting covenant with you. My faithful love promised to David, the same as I did with David. See, I have made him a witness to the peoples, a leader, commander of the peoples. Surely you will summon nations you do not know. Nations that do not know you will hasten to you. Why? Because of the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, for He has endowed you with splendor. Oh, isn't that beautiful? He has endowed you with splendor. 
Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the evil man his thoughts. Let him turn to the Lord and he will have mercy on him and to our God, for he will freely pardon. Hmm, my, my, my. Beloved, the prophets were writing about our salvation grace to come that was far greater than anything they understood, had experienced, or even expected. All the prophets wrote about this. They were writing about a Messiah who would bring a salvation that would touch the world. And when they prophesied about the Messiah, as Peter tells us in this passage, They prophesied about a Messiah and the grace of that salvation, the fact that the Messiah would first suffer. If you read Psalm 22, Psalm 22 details his crucifixion. Isaiah 53, you read that, details his sufferings. Not only did they prophesy about a Messiah who would suffer, they prophesied about a Messiah who would triumph, who would rule. The glory is to follow. Psalm 2 talks about this triumphant Messiah. Isaiah chapter 9, marvelous passage, verses 6 and 7. I urge you, if you haven't, to to read that. Powerful passage. So the prophets prophesied a Messiah that would suffer, a Messiah that would triumph. They prophesied a Messiah that would save. His suffering, his triumphantness, the whole focus was that he might save. That he would bind up the brokenhearted, that there would be a salvation brought to the ends of the world, to those who have no hope. Jesus read in Isaiah's prophecy, didn't he? Remember when he went to Nazareth on his preaching tour? Recorded in Luke chapter 4. Let me read this to you. Marvelous passage. When he returned to Galilee, in the power of the Spirit, news spread about him throughout the whole countryside. He taught in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. Verse 16 says, He went to Nazareth, where he'd been brought up. And on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. And he stood up to read, so he was, in effect, the guest speaker of the morning. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him, and unrolling it, he found the place where it is written. And he quotes from Isaiah chapter 61. He says, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind to release the oppressed, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Oh, isn't that a beautiful passage? Salvation. He's salvation he's preaching. And then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. And then he said this, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Oh, my! Oh, my! All that the prophets were studying, all that they longed to know, all that they longed to hear about the grace, this grace that was to come, the surpassing grace, Jesus says, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Woo! My! Can you imagine the electricity that went on in that room? Wouldn't you love to have been there? With hindsight. So the Old Testament prophets, they prophesied that he would suffer, that he would triumph, that he would save. Paul, Paul writes, oh, marvelously, the book of Romans in chapter 9. Flip over there real quickly with me. Real quickly, Romans chapter 9, verses 24 and 25. Tremendous. In the midst of Paul's statement about salvation, he quotes from Hosea. I will call them my people who are not my people. I will call her my loved one who is not my loved one. Isn't that beautiful? Verse 33. Much the same thing. 
He says, as is written, see, I lay, a, I lay in Zion a stone that causes men to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. And the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Look at chapter 10, verses 11 through 13. He says, as the scripture says, everyone who trusts in him will never be put to shame. For there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him. Verse 13, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Oh my! What a tremendous grace, a surpassing grace. Look at verse 20. I love this. And Isaiah boldly says, notice, I was found by those who did not seek me. I was found by those who did. I just walking alone. I found God. I didn't even seeking him. That's great. I was found by those who did not seek me. I revealed myself to those who didn't Ask for me. Oh my. Is that a surpassing grace? Is that a wonderful salvation? Does that speak of the greatness of our salvation? We were walking along one day, we weren't even thinking about God, and boom, He saved me. Turn to chapter 15, verses 9 through 12. Therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles. I will sing hymns to your name. Again it says, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles. Sing praises to him, all you peoples. And again Isaiah says, The root of Jesse will spring up. One who will arise to rule over the nations. And Gentiles will hope in him. This was unheard of. The surpassing grace. Beloved, what's Paul doing there? In all those passages, all those prophecies, whether it was through Moses, whether it's through Joel or Hosea or Isaiah, they're all predicting a grace that would come and it would be a grace that would come through Messiah, a surpassing anything that these people had ever experienced, ever, ever expected. The Messiah would come and save people, people who didn't even ask to be saved. Is this a great salvation or is this a great salvation? Hallelujah. Hallelujah. And in Christ, Paul says, in Christ is this grace now fulfilled. And remember, when the prophets wrote, did they have the book of Romans to fall back on? No, they didn't have the book of Romans, did they? Christ hadn't even been born yet. He hadn't died. He hadn't been risen from the dead. When these prophets wrote of this great salvation, the church hadn't been born. There was no one body, Jew and Gentile. The middle wall hadn't been broken down, had it? They hadn't experienced anything like this. This is blowing their minds. There was not a surpassing grace that had been extended around the world yet. Salvation hadn't come in its full expression yet. But so deep and so pervasive was their desire to understand these marvelous prophecies that Peter says in verse 10 that they searched intently and with the greatest of care. I want to know my salvation. I want to know my salvation. I want to know my salvation. I don't want to just know about it. I want to know its fulfillment in my life, moment by moment. I want to know the grace of God. I want to experience the grace of God in my life, moment by moment. Don't you? I don't want it to just be an intellectual exercise. Beloved, to glimpse, just to glimpse the greatness of our salvation. Just get a hold of how the prophets viewed it. They were just exhilarated with it. They wanted to know it and understand it. Listen to what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 13, verse 17. Tremendous. Jesus says, 
For I tell you the truth, many prophets, many prophets and righteous men longed to see what you see. Longed to hear what you hear. But they didn't see it, and they didn't hear it. Wow. Wow. What Peter says, you have. It's been preached to you. It's come to you. That surpassing grace that the prophets longed to understand. And what did those Old Old Testament prophets want to know about it? Well, he tells us in verse 11. They want to know what person was the Messiah. They want to know what the circumstances were. They want to know the time of this great salvation. When would he come? What were the circumstances surrounding his coming? If you were an Old Testament prophet, you had all this incredible information revealed to you by the Holy Spirit in you, wouldn't you be wanting to know the who, the what, and the when? There are some of you who are studying intently because you already know the who. You know something of the circumstances. What do we want to know? The when. (laughs) Most Jews today, most Jews today, if they're spiritual in any sense of that word, they're still wondering who and what and when. They still are wondering. Who was the last Old Testament prophet? Jesus. Close. Who was the last Old Testament prophet? John the Baptist. John the Baptist. Here's a classic illustration. Look at Matthew chapter 11, verse 2. John chapter 11, verse 2. When John heard in prison what Christ was doing, he sent his disciples to ask him. Notice this question. Are you the one who was to come, or should we expect someone else? One of the titles of the Messiah was the expected one. He said, well, wasn't John sure? Didn't John recognize Jesus and pronounce him the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world? What is John doing? What's he asking? What does he want to know? Even though he was inspired by the Holy Spirit to pronounce Jesus and to acknowledge Jesus as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, beloved, I am convinced he still was wondering what that meant. Because later on he asked, asked, are you the one? Are you the one? Now, what kind of Messiah were they looking for? Political deliverer, weren't they? They were looking for the triumph. They weren't, they'd lost sight of the suffering part. They were looking for the triumph, the glories. Even John was caught up in that. He's wondering, are you the one? Or should we look for someone else? So Peter's point is this. How great is salvation if it's the preoccupying thought of all the prophets? How great is this salvation if all the prophets were consumed with understanding and knowing about it? If they're so concerned about it, so thrilled about it, so desirous of fully knowing and understanding salvation, beloved, how precious should it be to you and I? Would you agree? How precious should it be to you and I? Do we take our salvation for granted? Yes. Yes. Do we study it intently and with the greatest of care that we may know it and experience it? Lord, where, where, where are we? Where are we really with, our, with respect to our salvation? Are we treasuring it? Are we relishing it? Are we finding comfort in it? Joy? Assurance? Where are we with our salvation? May I suggest to you, we have a great salvation. Far surpassing anything we could even imagine We should be hungering to know more and more about it, hungering to experience more and more of it. Beloved, where would you be today without the Lord in your life? Amen. Father, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, Lord.
for this great salvation. Thank you for Peter, who, Lord, has taken such a unique way to point it up to us. We love you this morning. Thank you for saving us. Thank you for the surpassing grace that you've extended to us. Free, Lord. Thank you. We love you this morning. Bob, let's, let's stand together. Let's sing to the Lord. Let's praise His name. Let's declare His salvation day after day. Daily lift my hand, for I will always sing of when you're.